This month on Security Management Highlights. Here at the New York Botanical Garden, we had a sculpture that was very inviting for kids to climb. Open-air exhibits and installations can make art more vulnerable to damage or theft. ASIS International Cultural Properties Council member Robert Caratanudo stops by to talk about securing art in unusual spaces. Plus, it's extremely hard to break down your own biases. It's just kind of something that human beings find very hard to do. Senior editor Mark Tarallo explains what it means to be a self-manager and effective ways to apply it in the workplace. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Artwork isn't always necessarily on display behind a pane of glass or velvet ropes. Oftentimes, installations are in the open air and may even blend in with the environment. While these non-traditional settings can introduce concerns about preserving the artwork as well as security considerations, there are steps curators and security professionals can take to maintain the integrity of the display. Robert Caratanudo, CPP, PCI PSP, is Associate Vice President for Security at the New York Botanical Garden and a member of the ASIS Cultural Properties Council. He stops by to share best practices for securing art in open-air environments. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Glad to uh, join you today. Yes, and thank you for your list that you wrote for the December issue that talks about securing art in kind of unusual spaces like open-air exhibits. You write that there are five considerations that will help curators protect art in these open-air spaces. Let's talk about the first one, evaluating risk. How can that be accomplished and why is that important? It's important because not every piece of art needs necessarily the same type of protection because it may not have the same type of risk. And when I'm talking about risk, some things that go into how to evaluate it are the very work of art itself. Does it have a a political meaning or a political intention? Who's the artist? Maybe uh, people have some anger or resentment towards the artist, or maybe there's other works of art of his or hers that uh, might be deemed controversial. Even the type of material lends itself to the type of uh, risk that might be involved. If it's made out of glass, it'd be more fragile than something made out of stone. And works of art, sculptures that are made out of metals, even uh, metal like copper or bronze, thieves have stolen them to melt down the metal and just sell it as scrap. So something that might be worth $100,000, if a thief can haul it away and just make $2,000 on it, sometimes they're often happy to do that. And then there's also other considerations like the weather. Do you live in a hurricane zone and you're going to have this outdoor art? Uh, Is it going to be affected by those conditions? The geography, are you in an earthquake zone, a fire zone? All that leads to different types of risk that you want to mitigate in terms of the type of outdoor art you will have. And Robert, you write that there are rules of etiquette that should be established for these open-air environments. Obviously, we're not talking about the Mona Lisa at the Louvre behind a glass pane. We're talking about art that's right there where the public might even be able to touch it. It could be part of the environment. So how do you ensure that people respect the artwork, follow the rules, and then how do you establish and communicate those rules to the public? It's really important to have rules of etiquette because 
as you say, it's, it's out there in the open. It could be in a public space, and some of it is very inviting. For instance, here at the New York Botanical Garden, we had a sculpture by an artist, Manolo Valdez, that was very inviting for kids to climb, but it wasn't there to, to, to climb. It may have looked like a big ladder, but it was not. So kids could get hurt, adults could get hurt. And sometimes touching some of these objects, if they were made out of glass, like Dale Chihuly's art, can't be fragile to the touch. What you need to do is just establish some rules so people understand uh, that you want to care for the art, that people touching it can damage the artwork, that interacting with the art in certain ways, like climbing it, it could injure them as well. So when we talk about risk, obviously there is the threat of, you know, natural disasters happening as well as just the public trying to move the art. So how can you anchor it down? How can you make sure that the art is secure and do it in such a way that you don't actually detract from the exhibit itself? Yeah, that's essential. Some artworks are enormous. They weigh so much that they may not need to be anchored in any way. Uh, but some artwork, it is best that they're anchored or they may be on a uh, pedestal or some sort of stand. That should be weighed down. Those types of stands also give some standoff distance so people can't get too close, usually more than arm's length away. So that tends to help. And in places like botanical gardens or different public spaces, there can be different ways to to use the environment to create some distance between the artwork and the visitor, but still provide intimacy and not block the view in any way. For instance, you can use reflecting pools. Lots of institutions have put works of art within their reflecting pools because it's a great way to display the artwork while having a protective physical barrier between the visitor and the artwork itself. People can also create short stone walls like you might see in some parks uh, that are not out of place and can help once again give some level of separation between a visitor's touch and the artwork. Here at the garden, one of the great things we did with a piece by Dale Chihuly last year, the Blue Star, is we put a, a five ring of flowers, a flower bed around the artwork. That's more beautiful than any any stanchion you could put out there. And it it looked great. And and people got the idea. You weren't supposed to go and step in the plant beds to get any closer to that beautiful uh, glass blue star. Sounds like some beautiful artwork I would love to see myself. Finally, you talk about some basic security measures. Establishing security around the art should be of utmost importance when transporting it, when setting it up, as well as establishing appropriate responses for any security concerns that arise. So can you just speak a little bit more to that final point about securing the art, having a plan in place around the exhibits? Art can be damaged through accidents, and accidents do happen, and that response is important in that everyone understands what their role is. What's the role of the security officer if they find graffiti on a statue? What if they do see some damage? How do they cordon off the area, clear the area, guests? So that's important, too, for any institution's public image. No one wants to show art that's been damaged and to understand who to call in terms of any repairs that might be needed, so that there's a procedure to follow. So that if you do have a hurricane or or a big storm and there's some damage to a piece of artwork, that you'll know what the protocols are. And that helps to relieve any, any possible tensions or potential miscommunications 
in terms of needing to restore the art to its uh, original form. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. Thank you very much for having me, Holly. You can't manage others if you can't manage yourself. This is just one quote from the December issue's feature story, Dancing with Yourself, written by senior editor Mark Tarallo. He joins us now to talk more about how to conduct effective self-assessments and seek feedback in others in order to become a great self-manager. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Tell us a little bit more about this idea of managing yourself. Where did this idea first originate as far as in the mainstream mindset? Yeah, the real popularizer of that idea is Peter Drucker. He's considered one of the fathers of modern management. In fact, he developed one of the first executive MBA programs way back in the early 70s. And so Drucker's kind of a a revered figure in business circles and management circles. And he wrote an article called Managing Oneself in 2005. The article appeared in the Harvard Business Review. The article was an excerpt from one of Drucker's books. The book was called Management Challenges of the 21st Century. And that article just kind of blew up. And it's really, you know, 15 years later, it's still considered the seminal work on self-management. Your article addresses how this concept of managing yourself is applied in the workplace environment, which seems appropriate given we're talking about management. Drucker writes, there's a series of questions you can ask yourself to ascertain self-knowledge in this process. So what are some of those questions? And yes, how do they apply in the workplace? Yes. As you say, it's a series of questions. Basically, the main ones are, what are my strengths? How do I perform? What are my values? Where do I belong and what can I contribute? So to give an example, let's take the first area. What are my strengths? Drucker tells managers in the workplace to do what he calls a feedback analysis. And this is his method of analysis. After every key decision or key action that a manager makes, the manager should then write down what he or she expects to happen based on that decision or action. Then a year later, the manager should compare those expectations with the actual results, what in fact did happen. And Drucker argues that if you do this for about three years straight, it'll be a pretty good record of what the manager's strengths and weaknesses are. And so basically, for all the questions that I gave, Drucker has these interesting analyses of how you can ascertain as a manager different characteristics about yourself that are really valuable to know. A few of them quickly would be Do you learn more by reading? Do you learn more by listening? Do you learn more by talking? Some people, some managers, if they have a staff meeting where they're talking about their proposals to their staff for an hour, that's the best way they learn. And he gives very interesting examples through history too. I think it was Mozart or one of the great composers would write things down And after he wrote things down in little books, he'd put the books away and he never referred to the books, but he said the act of writing it down 
that meant he would always remember it. So everybody has their own tricks, their own characteristics and traits in these things. Excellent. So Mark, I know you try to attend the Society for Human Resource Management annual conference when you can. And last year you heard a speaker who touched on the fact that possible biases might arise and come into play during the self-management process. Who was he and what did he say? Yeah, very interesting talk. That was by David Rock. He is president of the Neuro Leadership Institute. He gave an address at the SHRM conference called The Neuroscience of Breaking Bias. And as he said in the address, we see the world through tremendous filters and we are not aware of those filters. So this is very key for management. Basically, these filters are forms of bias. There's many of them. One of the main ones is called similarity bias, where people have a positive bias regarding people that are more like themselves. And that could be anything from ethnic background, religion, race, hobbies, economic class, geography, where you live. So all different factors. And studies have found that this similarity bias has a major impact on hiring decisions. So it's a very important bias for managers. And what people who study bias have found is that it's extremely hard to break down your own biases. It's just kind of something that human beings find very hard to do. So what you can do, however, is in your management processes, you can build in exercises and you can build in practices that try to filter out bias. And that can be different things, getting other people's point of view, having more blind tests where you look at someone's credentials without looking at their name, without looking at their photo, anything like that. And it can be an effective way to at least reduce bias. Absolutely. Very important to be self-aware during the self-management process. And you finally write that this experience bias can be mitigated by seeking out other perspectives. So, Mark, why is it so important to gain feedback from others to be a good self-manager? As you say, it is very important, and for a couple reasons. I interviewed Khalil Smith. He's a former leadership development expert at, at the Apple Company, and he's now a practice leader at the Neuroleadership Institute. And as he says, we are wildly, and he kind of talks about people in general, we are wildly bad in self-assessing. Most managers think they're really good managers, and a lot of them aren't. Confidence and competence are not correlated. So you may have various ideas about your own strengths and weaknesses that may not always be reality-based. And here's why feedback's important. It gets a little complicated, but think of you're the manager. You're asking, say, one of your direct reports for feedback, okay? Now, say, let's say your direct report says, well, you know, when we were having a conversation in our annual review, I kind of got the feeling that you weren't listening to what I was saying, okay? Now, that feedback can also be the, the result of that direct reports bias. So everybody is speaking through their own bias. But even if that feedback reflects that reports bias, it's still valuable because it still tells the manager, 
okay, this person really has a strong need for making sure that I'm listening. So even if in reality I was listening, the person didn't get that message and I can make sure that they do get that message in the future. Maybe, you know, ask them, repeat what they're saying, discuss what they're saying in more specificity so they realize, oh, this person listened and understood. Those things can be really helpful for managers to work with feedback. Yes, that's a great example. Well, Mark, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast and talking more about being a good self-manager. Thanks, Holly. That does it for this month's episode. If you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Until next time, bye-bye.